We'll move this around a second here. And does that work okay for y'all? Okay, good, good. Uh, it's good to be with you today as we worship together on this seventh Sunday of Christmas. And thank you, choir, for that wonderful anthem. And that text is just a, a very fitting one as we celebrate the very presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in this Christmas season. I want you to think a minute about nativity scenes, manger scenes, whatever you want to call them. And some of you probably have one in your home or, or maybe more. I noticed since I arrived here at the church this morning, uh, there's one that greeted me as I came in the door. And then out here in the gathering area, there were a few that the children had colored that were on the post out there. And then when I went up to the choir room, there were several up there in the choir room as well. I know as I prepared for the sermon today, I, I counted the nativity scenes in our home and counting the ones that were on ornaments on the trees and everywhere around, we have about 22 nativity scenes of one shape, size, or another. Some are little bitty tiny pieces and then our, our largest one, the, the kings, are about a foot tall, and some are very simple, just with the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph, and then others have the, the shepherds and the, the, the magi and the sheep and the goats and, and all the things that go with a, a large nativity scene as well. We have some friends, and every year they usually post a picture. They didn't this year on Facebook, but they usually post a picture of some of their nativity scenes. The last count, they said they had over 200, and they put them out every year at Christmas. That would take just a little bit of time, wouldn't it, just to get them out of the box and put them out, then, then put them up again. And so uh, there's something common in a nativity scene, right? We, we have them around our homes this time of year. We see them in many different places, but we kind of take it for granted. But, but really, the nativity scenes haven't been around all that long. But I had an interesting uh, Christmas card from really friends of Lisa's more than my friends, Rick and Marilyn Spies. And uh, Rick was Lisa's youth director when she was in high school. And he felt a call to the mission field and became a Bible translator with Wycliffe. And he and his wife were assigned to the Angave people in Papua New Guinea. And they were there for their first Christmas. And, and Rick, and in this letter, and I read the letter and I thought, well, they're retired now. And it, he wrote it in the present tense. And it kind of confused me until I looked at the date of the letter. And it said 1982. And I thought, oh, that was 41 years ago. But he was writing about that first Christmas experience with the Angave people, there were only two members of the tribe that spoke any English at all. And so it was a challenge. And, and he was at Christmas time, he was trying to, to help the people relate to the poor baby Jesus in a manger. And so he thought the best way to do that was with an image, a picture. And so he brought out a picture of the nativity with the, the stable and the, the shepherds and the sheep and the and the lambs, and, and the oxen, and donkeys, and the camels, and the kings, and all that, and to help them understand, there's the poor little baby Jesus, forced to be born in a stable, wrapped in a swaddling cloth, and lying in a manger for a bed. But the Ngave people saw it differently. 
They, they saw this as a, a, wow, this must be a very important person. This must be a very wealthy person because he has a home big enough to hold all of his animals. Because Rick wrote that the Agave people would keep their animals in their home with them. And the fact that this baby actually had a bed to himself because they never had a bed to themselves. They would sleep on mats on the floor with all the rest of the family. And that the baby was wrapped in cloth because they didn't do that with their babies. This was a tropic climate. And so they didn't wrap their children in any clothing until the children were old enough to know where to go to the restroom on their own. And they stayed naked up until that time. And so they were kind of surprised by that. And then they saw all the, the kind of clothing on the, the people that were gathered there. And they were impressed by that because they just had loincloths. And, and the only cloak that they had was made from bark from a tree. And he said it took him a long, long time to get over that, that first exposure of the nativity to the Ngave people because they saw it in a whole different light from those of us in a first world country. As we kind of get it that it's a poor baby Jesus born in this manger and in a place where he wouldn't want to be born and, and all that went with that. And, and we get that and we get it, I think, some now because of what happened in the 13th century. In the 13th century, there lived a man named Francis of Assisi. You remember that if you might have a, a, a statue of St. Francis in your yard, usually he's, he's there holding his hands out where you can put bird seed in his hands and the birds can come to eat because he had this great relationship with all of creation. But Francis decided that he was going to stage the very first living nativity scene, well, since the one recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And the reason he did that because he understood that the people of his day, the common people of the day, which was that 99% of the population, didn't get a sense at all about what Jesus was and who Jesus was and, and that he was born in the circumstances in which they lived their lives day in and day out, that he came to be like one of them. And, and they couldn't understand that because the only images they had of Jesus were those in fine art. And, and they saw in the stained glass windows this image of Jesus. And, and he was dressed in finery and, and had all kinds of, of gold crowns or halos about him. And, and then they would see in the statuary of the day these statues of Jesus and the Virgin Mary. And, and he was so wealthy looking in those images. And so he said, I want to help them understand that because you also have to remember that in those days, the service of worship was done in Latin, a dead language at that time, and the people didn't understand Latin. They were illiterate, they couldn't read scriptures, but the scriptures weren't freely available to anyone anyway. In fact, many of the priests of the day couldn't understand what they were saying when they conducted the, the mass in Latin. They just learned it by rote. And this is what they said. And they would say it, and that's what they did. And, and then, to top it all off, 
the people in the nave, that's where you are sitting out there, would be separated from the chancellery by a screen. And the screen would be made of stone with some openings in it, or maybe wood with some openings, where the people in the nave, as they stood there to worship, because there weren't any pews in those days, there weren't any seats, everybody stood during the worship service, they would catch glimpses of the priest who would stand at the high altar at the very back of the chancel area with his back to the congregation conducting this service in Latin, a language the people couldn't understand, and it was all so far removed from them. The only signal they had of what had happened in the Mass was in the middle of the Mass, a bell would ring, and that was the sign that the priest had had consecrated the elements that had become the body and blood of Christ, and they would prepare themselves to receive communion. So they were far removed from having any kind of intimate understanding of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And so here was Francis wanting to correct that misunderstanding. Francis, who had made a decision to embrace Lady Poverty, and to live a life for the poor baby Jesus. And so he was inspired in Assisi. He found the stable there and animals there, and he recruited the townspeople to play the parts of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the magi, and he got a real live living baby to be the baby Jesus. And so there they were with the animals making the noises that animals make and doing the things that animals do and the straw that smelled and, and manure that smelled and all that stuff. And there was this baby who cried and who peed and pooped and did all the things that normal babies do. You know, despite what it says in a way in a manger about the baby didn't cry, I just don't think that's quite the case. I think Jesus was a real live baby. That's the whole point, that he became us. He became us, one of us. And, and yes, Jesus had a belly button. And yes, Jesus did all the things that we did. And, and Jesus was like us. And, and the townspeople began to get it that Jesus was more like them than they ever thought before. And they were so excited about it that suddenly this whole idea of a nativity scene began to spread throughout the land in Italy. And that's where nativity scenes started. And, and that's why so many in years past were produced in Italy because that's where it all started. And, and the Fontanini family still does it. And, and you can go to the Carmelite Monastery there on Cherry Road and, and in their gift shop they still have, they sell all the Fontanini pieces. In fact, they had one of the descendants of the Fontanini family who came this year to, to sign some of those pieces that people purchased. But can you imagine that? and we've got it today but it's still kind of hard for us to get that connection isn't it because our nativities are kind of dressed up aren't they and they look kind of nice and it's all neat and 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 set up and and so it's still hard for us to understand that Jesus really was a little baby just like us dependent upon his mother and his father to protect him, to nourish him, to care for him. That he was that. He was like us. 
And he grew up like us as a little child. Now there's some of those gospels that didn't make it into our scriptures that, that talk about all these wonderful things baby Jesus did and little child Jesus did. And I, I'm not saying one way or the other about that, but I think Jesus was more like us. He was like us because God wanted to speak to us in a way that we could understand. That we could understand this, that God would come like us. We can understand a baby, can't we? And I think that's some of the attraction of Christmas because we can get a baby. You know, you can, you can see all kinds of people on videos and all kinds of Facebook posts and all that, but when you see people reacting to a baby, isn't it when you see a little child who's being rolled through the grocery store and you see them, what do you do? You smile at them, don't you? You immediately smile at them because there's something about a baby, and we, and we want to smile at them. We want to care for them. We want to celebrate them. We want to protect them and care for them. And God knew what God was doing in sending Jesus as a baby, something that we can relate to and that we can understand. Robert Fulgham, in his book, it was on fire when I lay down on it. And you remember, he's the one who wrote the book, uh, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And he, he has a wonderful story in the book about a church he was serving. He was a Unitarian pastor. And the church that he was serving, and, and they, it had been years since that congregation had had a living nativity scene in the church. And he said there was a reason for that because he heard the stories over the years about why they didn't do that sort of thing anymore because the very last time they had it, it was kind of disastrous. Somebody had the good idea that we need to have live sheep in the living nativity scene in the church. And he said, well, one of the sheep developed diarrhea in the middle of the nativity scene. So that was one strike against them. And then, uh, at the time, it was in the evening, at the time when the angel Gabriel was supposed to appear, they turned out all the lights, and it scared the little cherubs choir to death, and they started screaming and crying and wetting their pants because they were so afraid. So that didn't go over very well. And then there was a kind of flu-like virus that was going around, and two of the kings upchucked during the service, and... And there were other things that didn't. And then finally, when at the close of the service, when the candlelight was being brought in, it was being brought in by, by the youth of the day. And he said the way they were playing around with the candles and the light, it, it brought more terror than peace to the congregation. And so they decided, we're not doing this ever again anymore. Well, a whole new generation of mamas had grown up there and they had their children, and they wanted their children to experience being a part of a living nativity scene in the church. And the grandmamas gave in. And so he said they started sewing the, the costumes for the angels and cutting out the cardboard, cord, cardboard wings, get it out in a minute here, and, and gluing chicken feathers on the wings, and, and they... They saw there was a young mother and her husband in the congregation and her baby was going to be due about the time of the, of the nativity and they wanted to recruit her baby for the nativity and she said, well, I'll do my part if I can. And, and then they made a decision that they would have it in the morning. 
So there was no darkness, no scared cherubs, no candles for the youth to terrorize the congregation with, none of that. And the only concession to an animal, somebody had the idea, well, let's rent a donkey and, and Mary could ride into the chancel area to the manger on a donkey. Well, the, the morning came for the production and oh, he said, and to top it off, we decided we don't need to have a rehearsal for this. Everybody knows the story. We just do it. And so they did. They started singing. That went well. And then it came time for Mary to make her entrance. And the donkey came in the side door. And the donkey got right inside the door and it froze. Stiff-legged. Wouldn't move. Joseph was pulling the lead and the donkey still wouldn't move. He was pulling for all he was worth. Uh, Mary was sitting on the donkey and kicking the donkey, trying to get it to move, wasn't going to move. Finally, the chair of the trustees, who was in the congregation, in his suit and all, came and went around and got behind the donkey and started pushing the donkey. And it happened to be that it was a, a slate floor, so the donkey started sliding ever so slowly across the slate floor. And all the while, while he was doing this, there was a tape of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing loudly, and suddenly, the tape recorder stopped playing. And all you could hear was the chair of the trustees saying, kind of loudly, move you blankety-blank donkey. And... The trustee's wife stood up, Leon, you shut your filthy mouth. And you can imagine people started laughing, and that, that kind of changed the tone of the whole experience. Well, and also the mother didn't have the baby yet, and so Raggedy Andy played the part of the baby Jesus, and Mary only dropped him a couple of times, and, and one of the wise men forgot his gifts. And, but overall, it went okay. It went okay despite its chaos and its messiness. And Fulgham says, but isn't that really kind of the point of the whole story? Isn't that the whole thing that, that God comes into the midst of our chaos and our messy lives and our tumultuous lives and, and all that we live because all of us have stuff that goes on in our lives. None of us have a perfect life. We all have those struggles and challenges in life. We all have those heartaches, and we all have other things that come in life, and the good and the bad and everything else in between. But the good news is, is that God chose to come into our lives and into our world with his very best gift and expression of love for us. One writer said, you know, God could have just said, Gabriel, go down there and float over the world and shout out, God loves you, and then come back up to heaven and that's enough. But no, God chose to give God's very greatest, best gift in Jesus to show just how much God loves us and cares for us. Nativity it's not just a scene set up over there somewhere and our homes are in our churches. Not just at special times, 
But nativity is us, where we have the opportunity to have the baby Jesus, God's gift to us, come into our hearts and into our lives to say to us, you are loved. You are loved. I'm loved by God. That God has chosen in spite of us to love us in all of his fullness and all of his grace by letting go of his power in Jesus to say, here it is. Here's this gift. Nurture it. Tend it. Love it. But most of all, receive it. That's the good news of Christmas. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word for us this day. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love. And through your Holy Spirit, may the words written and spoken be inspired by you to touch lives where they need to be touched this day. In Jesus' name, amen.